Leviticus 23. We were all there this morning for our devotionals, right? Leviticus is one of those books. This whole chapter is about, is showing us something. God really likes to party. God invents all of the festivals. He enjoys weddings. Here's how much he enjoys weddings. Weddings go for seven days. Uh, and it's all one long big party. Then bride and groom, they don't go away for a honeymoon. They instead have the entire year off of work. This is spectacular. But this is what they did for party. God knew how to party. So this one, what we're going to look at is the Festival of Tabernacles. Uh, it, it, or and as they called it, it was the Festival of Sukkot. It begins like this. In, so the beginning on the 15th day of the seventh month, after you gathered the crops of the land. So what season is this? Fall, all of you farmers. When you gather the crops, it's usually fall. Celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is the Sabbath day, and the eighth day is also a Sabbath rest. So it didn't go for, didn't go for just seven days. It went for eight. So it went from Sunday through Monday because you need that day of recovery. This is the kind of party that they were throwing. How many of you go on vacation and you get home and you need a day, right? This is what God's instituting. Make it eight days. Sleep, sleep on the eighth day so you can get back to work on the next Tuesday. So this was an eighth day thing. Remember, eight days. On the first day, you are to take branches from a luxuriant tree from the palms, the willows, and the other leafy green trees and rejoice before the Lord for seven days. Palms, Palm Sunday, what's the season? Fall, Palm Sunday is supposed to be, or the, the festival that the palms go with, is supposed to be in the fall. Yet, we see in Luke, John, all four of the Gospels, they are doing the palms in the spring. It doesn't match up. Here's what they did with the palms. They would get hundreds of thousands of people. They would commute down to Jerusalem and they would come together and they would shake palms. They would thank God for the harvest they just had. And then they would all go like this. What's that sound like? Rain. Rain. You were here last service, cheater. Uh, It sounds like rain. So you get hundreds of thousands of people all going like this at the same time. And they are thanking God for their previous harvest. Thank you for the grain you've given us. Thank you that you took care of us like you did when you, we were in the desert. They would, build tab- they would build little huts outside their house. We call it camping. They only did this once a year. And, and they, yeah, it was exhausting. This is why we shouldn't camp. And so they did this. And then on that Sunday, they would get together and they would have palms. And they would thank God for what came. And then they would be asking God for more rain. Because when you live in an agrarian society... You always need rain for next year's crops. And so this sounds like rain. They would, they would have this and they would, they would pray for more. In, in verse 41 of Leviticus, you guys want these? In verse 41, you can play with them. Um, in verse 41, Leviticus, it says, celebrate this festival for seven days. This is to be a lasting ordinance for all generations. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters, camping, for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. And in case you're wondering who wrote this, I am the Lord your God. So they had the festival of Sukkot, Sukkot, tabernacles, however you want to say it. And this had some major political overtones. This is how it began. 
okay? They would come every fall and ask God for more rain, and they all had palm branches. Okay. This is where it gets a little history channel There's a 400-year gap between the book of Malachi and, the, and our first New Testament book of Matthew. Scholars will call this the silent years. It doesn't mean that God wasn't speaking. It doesn't mean that God wasn't working. It's just that we don't have any books that are in our scriptures that are written during these times. But a lot happened. One of the most interesting and fascinating things that happened was the Maccabean Revolt. How many of you ever heard of the Maccabean Revolt? Cool. We can all chat. You were here last service. So the Maccabean Revolt. This, this happened, uh, if you're familiar with Jewish history, this was a huge deal. There's a book in the Apocrypha about the Maccabees. It's, it's in between. Uh, our, our Catholic brothers and sisters have this in their scriptures. And it's a fascinating book. I, I, I'm hoping they make a movie about it one day because it's just one of those interesting stories. In, in uh, 330 BC, it all goes back to 330 BC, a long time ago. And I'm going to try and talk fast to keep you guys here, so just stick with me. In 330 BC, Alexander the Great, we've heard of him? Alexander the Great took over what was the known world at that time. Not only did he conquer everywhere he set foot, he had this practice called Hellenization. Hellenization was when he made everyone he conquered become essentially like him. Uh, he was Greek, so he'd go into the, the city, he would build academies, gymnasiums, theaters, where plays can be performed. He took over their temples and said, you are no longer whatever you are before we took over. You are now Greek, and you will become just like everybody else who is Greek. It was called Hellenization. For Jews, this was incredibly po- uh, problematic. In Greek worship, if you look at Greek, myth- Greek mythology, their gods resemble humans. It's a switch thing. Gods are made in the image of humans if you're Greek. This comes right up against our, our Jewish friends and our faith when we say, no, 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 no. Humans are made in the image of God, not the other way around. And, and so this made, high, this made it highly problematic for the Jewish people when they took over the Palestine, the Palestine area, the Israel area. This made it problematic for them. The Jews believed one thing and the Greeks did Another. So what you had is you had all of these people, some Jews, who decided to go along with what, what Greece was doing, to look just like Greece. They were sympathizers. They just kind of blended in. We're not going to make a big stir about it. We're in captivity. We don't want to be killed. We're just going to become Greek. And then you have what was called the remnant. The resistance, I guess you could say, if we're today. They sat on the other side. And they said, no, we are going to keep our way of doing things. We're going to keep our religion. We're not going to become Greek. We are God's chosen people. We are his priesthood. We are going to remain that way. And so they, they had this, uh, these two groups that went back and forth. Then there was this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. We got a picture of him. He posed for glamour shots one day. That's what he looks like. Uh, the word for him in, uh, in Hebrew and Greek and English is, this guy was a jerk. He took Hellenization and he stepped it up a notch. Not only did he say, everyone's going to become Greek, but everything that you do in your area that, that signifies your culture is now outlawed. So he took the Jewish law, the Torah, and said, no more. Jewish law, Torah, said you were circumcised, uh, male, male children on the eighth day of existence. Uh, he said, no more circumcision, that's outlawed. 
That was a huge sign for the Jewish people. This is a sign. It even goes into the New Testament. That's a big deal for them. Then he said, no more sacrifices. You can't worship in the way you did worship. In fact, and to step that up a little bit, he said, I, Antiochus IV, this dude, am Zeus, and you will make sacrifices to me. You see how this can rub against the Judaism. You shall have no other gods before me. Not only did it bother them that much, uh, that bothered them, he said, in fact, I'm going to take over your temple. I'm going to take everything meaningful out of it, and you're going to sacrifice to me pigs, which was insult upon insult upon insult and then injury. Pigs were an unclean animal. Can't even be in the same vicinity as a pig. Can't touch them, can't eat them. And then he says, we're going to sacrifice those pigs in the holy of holies, the temple, to me. So imagine everything about your way of life has now been spat upon on the ground. Nothing about you. It would make things very, very difficult. So imagine this time, more people conform to what Rome was doing. Or Greece, Greece. Rome comes later, we'll get to Rome. Uh, it conforms to what Greece was doing. Let's just be like them, let's not cause a stir. But this kind of thing that Antiochus was doing made the remnant more and more angry, and it went on for 10 years. Then there was a guy named Matthias. Matthias has five sons. One of Matthias' son is named Judas. Not the Judas that we're familiar from the Gospels. This is another Judas. It's a common name. Judas uh, had a fantastic uh, nickname. He was called Judas Maccabee. Maccabee means hammer. Hammer. When you're going to lead a revolt, which is what the, Judas and his brothers did, you want your last name to be Hammer. Because the marketing on that is fantastic. Uh, there's a song that can go with it. Hammer time. Uh, it's MC Hammer for the young ones. It, but it's just, it's brilliant. And so if you're ever going to lead a revolt, this is your nickname. So he did. He started a revolt. His brothers and their dad led a revolt that lasted and that started about 160 years before Jesus came. And they won. They retook Jerusalem. Uh, They reinstated sacrifice. It's a pivotal moment in Jewish history. For the first time in 500 years, the Jewish people controlled their city. And they were free to worship Yahweh in any way that they wanted. It was the great time in Jewish history. uh, When the Maccabees were laying siege to Jerusalem, so they surrounded it and they were trying to kick the, the Greeks out. It was during the time of fall. What festival was happening? Sukkot. Okay, so they're laying siege to Jerusalem. It's Sukkot. And in the middle of war, this is, my, uh, my, this is the extent that I know about war knowledge and strategy. In the middle of laying siege, you don't take eight days off. That's just something to be like, that would be bad for your war plan, correct? So they say, you know what? We're not going to take eight days off. We're going to postpone Sukkot until we're going to win this thing, until we have the temple back. And so they didn't celebrate it on time. They celebrate it later. It's the only time that they didn't celebrate it in fall. Instead, they have a different holiday. So they take over the temple. 
And they, but, and they, they said, now we're going to celebrate everything that we missed. We're going to make up for it. We're going to follow God's commands. It's going to be late, but he's cool with it. He wrote us a note. And so he go, they go, they go into the temple. They clean it out. They reinstate everything and they're going to have the celebration. But pivotal to this celebration was lighting of the lampstand. This is all, this will all make sense in a minute. But in order to light the lampstand, they needed oil. But oil hadn't been made for the last few, last decade because Antiochus was in charge. And so now they needed the oil. But the only oil they could find was a little bit. But they needed eight days worth. Uh, eight days because of the celebration of Sukkot was eight days. And the temple needed to have the light for eight days. And it took eight days to make more oil. So they were in a bind. They decided to go ahead with it. We're going to make this work. God, and they say this in, in Maccabees, God allowed the, the oil to last for eight days. And then they rededicated the temple back to him. The word for dedication, Hanukkah. This is where Hanukkah comes from because God gave them the temple back. And the, all of this comes back to this. They, that oil and the idea that God delivered them, gave them enough oil, they celebrated the Feast of Sukkot with their palms. This is important because the palm and that day became so ingrained in their history that they made coins for it. We have pictures of it. That's the coin, a palm tree. Underneath it is the inscription, Hosanna, Soshana, God will deliver us. So the palms became something that represented revolution from foreign powers. It meant that their side was going to win. Uh, the temple coins, this, this lasted for about 100 years. On the front of this coin, uh, Dave, did we show Judas? There's Mr. Maccabee. He's got a great beard, something to aspire to. But on the front side was that. On the back side was the palm. This came to represent everything about revolution for them. Uh, so imagine yourself, this is what it meant like. Imagine yourself having a difficult time and you're traveling through Canada, okay? And you're trapped there. I don't, I don't imagine many of us getting trapped in Canada. So it's just, we're in Canada, you're lost and you're persecuted. And then you stumble upon the American embassy and you see the stars and stripes there. It would give you like this sense of, oh, I'm home. I can... This is the country where I, where I live in. This is my home. This is what the palm began to represent for them. The palm also said was their war cries. Hosanna, Sushana is what they would have said. It meant God deliver us. This is what they, they chanted. They waved the palms. God deliver us. So fast forward. That happened. Fast forward 190 years later. The Maccabees revolt was taken out by Rome. Rome is now in charge. Roman they have Roman oppression. We try to identify what it was like to live under Rome. There's no real comparison to what they had to endure. Anytime someone would fake being a Messiah that can come and save them from uh, the opposing force, Rome would come down so hard on them. There was once a pretender Messiah that tried to lead a revolt, and we have record of his uprising, and Rome killed 3,000 Jews by using uh, crucifixion. They lined the streets with those who were a part of this. So everyone would look up and say, that's what happens when you try and step up against Rome. 
But those revolts were all led, hoping to bring back what Judas Maccabees did. So imagine you're living in that mix. You're living with this anticipation that maybe one day you're going to be a part of a new revolution. You're going to be a part of a new kicking out of a foreign oppressor. And you were doing this and you're looking forward to it. And you would call that person who's going to lead that revolt the Messiah. This is what it meant to be a Jew in that day. You were actively waiting for Messiah. And then you hear about this man named Jesus. Jesus is, says he's Messiah. He, he teaches differently than the other Messiahs that have come and gone. He teaches with authority. Not the kind of authority that he read the book and he knows all the stuff on it. But he teaches like he actually wrote the book because he kind of did. He knows the stuff. And then he's making blind people see again. He's making deaf people hear again. People who couldn't walk are now walking. And then a few weeks ago, there was a guy named Lazarus who was dead for four days. Three days means you're dead. Four days means you're really dead. And so four days, and he walks up and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And now he's raised someone from the dead. We following? This is the kind of context he walks in. Then you hear Jesus is coming to Jerusalem during the season of Passover. Passover uh, is a celebration of when God delivered Israel from Egypt. It's a huge political thing, and they celebrate it, hoping that God would deliver them once again. So Jesus is coming, and what do they pick up? Palm branches. They want Jesus to deliver them from Rome. They want another Maccabee. They want a revolution. They want the return to glory. And the first thing that Messiah is going to do when he comes to town is kick out Rome. So let's help him along. We also know at this time that Rome knew exactly what the palm trees meant. They understood the symbolism. So they said, no more parades with palm trees. We get what that means. That means there's going to be a riot and we want nothing to do with riots anymore. In fact, if you do this, look what happened to 3,000 of your friends. No more palms. So in Luke, Luke tells the story of Palm Sunday and he adds more detail to it. Uh, In Luke 19.35, this is what happens. They brought it to Jesus. They brought the colt to him. They threw their cloaks on it and put Jesus on him. And he went along uh, people, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near to the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, we know the place, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, which is Hosanna. The, some of them, some of the Pharisees, in the crowd, said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, we tend to get on the Pharisees a lot. We call them evil. Uh, but here, they're not doing anything bad. The Pharisees were, were, in a way, responsible for keeping the Jewish people in line. And now we see that the Jewish people are starting to wave around the palms, and they're making a ruckus, and their fear was that they were going to start another revolt. And the Pharisees didn't want Rome to come swooping in and wipe everybody out. So they were doing what they thought would be the right thing. So they're like, Jesus, cool it. We don't want another slaughter here. We don't want another massacre. Please stop your people from doing this. It makes sense while they're doing this. They're not being anything bad here. And then Jesus says to them, he rebukes them. 
And says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. He's quoting here uh, various places from Psalms that say the same thing, but also in Habakkuk. In Habakkuk, and this is what turns the whole Palm Sunday thing around, in Habakkuk, where he's quoting from, says that if they want the sword, Habakkuk 2, this is Brad's version, if you want to live by the sword and you want to revolt, you're going to die by the sword and you're going to get your revolt. Jesus says this, as he, and it says this in verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. If our traditional view of Palm Sunday is correct and they're declaring Jesus as the Messiah, why would he weep? So there's a lot of questions that come up with this, with our traditional view of of Palm Sunday. This should be a happy day. But Jesus is weeping because he knew that, yes, they're declaring him as king and they're declaring him as Messiah. But what they were doing was they were declaring him as a political Messiah and attaching all sorts of their own baggage to what Jesus would look like. They came to Jesus with their agenda, and Jesus, their Messiah, would never allow Rome to rule over them. They were missing the point of Jesus. This is why Jesus says this in verse 42. If you, even, if you, even you, had only known that this day, would, what would bring you peace, but it is now suddenly hidden from your eyes. So they thought that, G- that the Messiah was going to come, kick Rome out, and then they would have their own version of peace. But Jesus, and we'll look at this verse a couple times, he looks at them and says, if you only knew what peace is in front of you, if you only knew what was happening, but now you can't see it. So there's a political side to it, the side that says we want a new king. But there's also a very religious side to this, a religious background. There are a lot of debate on how the days of Holy Week work out. Uh, But here's the deal. If we know anything, everything goes back to Exodus. So we can look at the days and line them up. But if we know this, right? Especially here, everything goes back to Exodus. If there's any question, go to Exodus. It's my favorite book of the Bible, but we're not being uh, biased at all. Everything goes to Exodus. In Exodus 12, we know the story about how God delivered the people of, of Israel from Egypt. Exodus 12 is a pivotal thing. In, in Exodus 12, we have 10 plagues. Do we know them? There was the locusts, there was the, 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 flea, the flies, there was the frogs and the rivers to blood. The last one of these plagues was the most powerful plague, and they celebrated every year. They were commanded that day, on the last plague, the 10th plague, to come out and, uh, and take a lamb that was perfect, without blemish, sacrifice it, and then paint your doorpost with it, with the blood of that lamb, and then go inside and have a nice lamb dinner. And they said this, tomorrow God is going to set you free. If the plague was this, if you didn't have the blood on the doorpost of your house, the angel of the Lord was going to come that night. And if you didn't have the blood, every firstborn creature in your home was going to die. If you did have the blood on the doorpost, your house would be passed over. This is why they call it Passover. The angel of the Lord passed over your house. Every year they would remember this, and God told them to celebrate this every year. Every year they would take a lamb, they would sacrifice it, they would prepare their house, they would sweep all of the leaven out of their house, they would prepare to leave 
every year after this. It was their spring cleaning. They would get everything out and be ready. They would have a meal that night, and it would be the Passover feast. Every year they would do this. This is the time where we find Jesus walking into Jerusalem. So it's strongly argued that the time that Jesus was walking into town or riding the donkey into town was the same time where the Jewish people would be prepping for Passover and they would be selecting their lamb. So Jesus, who is known as the lamb, is coming in saying, I'm the lamb, I'm the sacrifice, while they were all looking for their own little lamb that they would have to celebrate the Passover, Jesus is right there with them. He is what they're looking for. So why is Jesus weeping? John told everyone that was around them, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here Jesus comes as a lamb to be sacrificed, but everyone is throwing down palms and they're missing it. They're saying, Hosanna, we want a hammer. We don't want this kind of lamb. We don't want that kind of person. We want someone who's going to come and fight. And Jesus is looking at him going, you guys, this is adventures and missing the point, if I've ever seen adventures and missing the point. The only Messiah that they wanted was the, was the Messiah that they had all their strings attached to. The only, they only wanted, they didn't want what Jesus was offering And what they wanted was freedom from Rome. This is why he says, look, I'm weeping over all of this because you think you know what you want. You think that this is, you want this freedom. You think that this is going to give you peace, but it's only going to lead to more troubles. In verse 43, he says this, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. They will encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on top of another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. They want a revolution. This is going to give them peace. Jesus says, you're going to to get your revolution. It's going to come when Rome comes back and totally destroys the city in like 60, 70 years after this. You're going to get it but you're going to be on the wrong side of it. So, Palm Sunday. I had always thought that this was the time when Israel said, yay, you're Messiah, yay, let's celebrate Jesus, let's let's sing the songs and wave the palm branches. This is what we should be celebrating. Certainly they do that, but they missed it. It's not actually what Jesus was, because if they're celebrating here, why aren't we celebrating that they got it? Because five days later, they're all shouting, give us the criminal. Bring us Barabbas. We don't want this Jesus guy. Crucify him. He doesn't fit what we want. He doesn't fit our political background. He doesn't fit our religious background. And Jesus is saying, I'm the lamb. I'm the king. The only glory that I'm concerned about is what glory comes from the father. Jesus came washing feet. He came forgiving sins. He became not interested in power. Yet that's all they wanted. What they were looking for was not what Jesus was. If if looked at in this way, it makes total sense why they were shouting crucify him five days later. Because it didn't meet their agenda. 
The first thing that Jesus does when he comes into Jerusalem in Luke's, trend, in Luke's story is he comes in and he looks at the way that they're, they're worshiping and he says, I'm not interested in this kind of religion, this money changing that's happening here. And so he turns the tables. He says, I don't want this fake stuff. I want the real stuff. And they looked at Jesus and my, my thinking, they looked at Jesus and went, this is going to be hard to follow. This isn't the revolution that we wanted. The Jews thought freedom means freedom from Rome. And Jesus says that that's not true freedom. Jesus taught that there really was an enemy, but your enemy isn't your occupying force. It's the sin inside every single one of us. It's the ancient adversary, the devil, that he'd been fighting for years. Jesus taught that freedom and salvation and peace aren't political things, but they're matters of the heart. And it didn't matter who your king and who your queen was if you had Christ in your life. So do we see what all this is happening here? So the issue that was going on was what sort of Messiah was Jesus going to be? The majority of these people wanted revolution. And he was offering himself as the opposite, a different kind of revolution, a different kind of revolt. In some ways, it would have been easier if Jesus would have gone along with what he'd said. It's easier to say, hate your enemies rather than love them. It's easier to say, why pray pray for them? I don't want to pray for them. I want to pray against them. Jesus was talking about an entirely different revolution, an entirely different crown, an entirely different way of doing politics than what they were talking about. So you have your expectations politically. You have the expectations religiously. And now how do we fit into this? We come to Jesus with the same things. I was, um, I know that's something uh, that they only struggled with back then, right? We don't tie religion to our politics, do we? Jesus would vote like you. Jesus would uh, do the same things you would do. We we don't have that problem. We would never uh, do this sort of thing. Thing in our world, at least I don't think. So we can look at it back then. We would never say to Jesus, Jesus, I'll accept you as long as you further my agenda. We would never say that. We say it all the time. So Jesus comes to us and says, You know, if it's peace you're looking for, you're not going to find it with your agenda. Verse 42. If you had only known this day, what would bring you peace? But it would be hidden from you. Now, how often does Jesus come to us and call us to places where it doesn't fit our agenda? How often does he ask you and call you to a place where you go, I don't, I don't know about this? Because here's what the Jews did. They thought that being blessed meant getting rid of Rome. And so they looked for Messiah to do just that. We do that in a certain way. We might not pray for the, the, well, maybe you do pray for the removal of government, but maybe you don't. But we do this anyways. We look for a blessing. So we think blessing means that we have cool stuff. So we pray for cool stuff. And then we pray for money. Maybe a blessing to you is money, a house, a job, a different, a different job. Maybe it's the car you drive. Maybe it's the clothes you have. That means that you're blessed. Or if your idea of being blessed means that you have a solid marriage and good kids, then Jesus becomes your spouse fixer and your kid raiser. But he's not really your Messiah. He's just your stand-in making things better for you. Or if your idea of being blessed means that you're successful, then Jesus Jesus becomes your goal fulfiller. When we do that, 
Now, it's true that Jesus will come in and make those things better for you, but if that's all Jesus is to you, is to punch your agenda of what Jesus does and what you want, you're attaching agenda to the Messiah. When we do that, we're playing the same game the Maccabee played. We're not, but we're just kind of quiet about it. We sound and look like good religious folks, but in many ways, we do the same thing. Jesus, I'll accept you if... You forgive me of everything that I'll ever do. That's awesome, and that's all he becomes. Just forgive me of everything I've done and everything I'm going to do. Jesus, I'm, I'm all for you giving me love and joy. And then it ends there. And when we stop there, I, what, does, perhaps Jesus weeps over us then. I say it in this way. I look for peace. I look for things in security. If you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm a six. We like things locked up and tight. We don't like the unknown. It makes it hard. It keeps me awake at night. And so when I look at Jesus, I say, Jesus, just make things secure. That's me attaching my desires and my agenda to what Jesus is. And so I end up making Jesus look like me and my agendas. I want peace, but that's not the peace he's after. He's not after all the security in the world. That's not what he's here to bring. There's peace, but not that. We can say, Jesus, I want to follow you. You can be my Messiah. But this whole bit about like sacrificial love, I don't want to believe that. So I'm going to put that aside. Jesus, I'll follow you. But don't you dare touch my wallet. Jesus, I want to follow you. I want you to be my Messiah, but don't you dare even think about asking me to change jobs. Jesus, I want to follow you, but hands off my sexuality. Don't even go there. Jesus, I want to follow you. But, and so uh, in order to do that, leave my ambitions alone. Don't touch my plans. I got my life planned out. I'm going to do this here. Then when I'm 35, I'm going to do this. I'm turning 40 on Wednesday. And then when I do this, 40, I'm going to do that. And here, 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 everything's mapped out. Jesus, don't you dare touch my ambitions. Don't you dare touch my wallet. Don't you dare touch my plans. So we have this agenda and we take it to Jesus and say, I'm cool with you as long as you're cool with me. And Jesus says, that's not the peace I'm coming after. The peace I'm coming after is all of you, no agendas. The triumphal entry is about peace that comes from surrendering to Jesus' agenda, which means that we ultimately need to drop ours. Because the Jews were convinced that peace came from revolution and Jesus wept. If you had only known what brought you peace. So today, Palm Sunday, where do you think true peace is found? Where do you find peace? Where does Jesus perhaps weep over you? What backgrounds, when you come into meeting with Jesus, what backgrounds and stuff do you say, cool, I'm just going to attach this construct onto Jesus and make it fit, and then I'll be happy? What things are you missing the peace that Jesus had offered you? I wonder sometimes if Jesus looks at me and goes, Brad, you want peace so bad, and I'm, I'm trying to give it to you. For those of you who think that pastors have it all figured out, this is probably paradigm cracking for you, so I'm sorry. But there's still this wrestling. What peace, what peace do you think you're going to have by having security? Because then your peace is only security, but that security's gone. Guess what? 
And when I'm so fixated on that, I wonder if Jesus is weeping over me. We come to Jesus' with agendas, and what really happens is our hands are so full with what we want Jesus to be that he can't put himself into our place because there's so much other stuff, and there's stronger words than I can use than stuff, but there's so much other stuff in our hands that we miss Jesus because of our agendas. So Sunday's Easter. Today would have been the Palm Sunday if we go by the calendars. Today would have been the day that Jesus comes into town and says, here I am, I'm the peace you're looking for. So the question to you as we enter into the Holy Week, as we enter into the week where we start observing these things and remembering, where do you find your peace? If you call Jesus your Savior, is he king? If you call Jesus your king and your Messiah, is he the Lord? In your life, or is it something else? Where does your agenda meet Jesus? And which one are you likely to serve when it comes to that? Or are you so busy holding on to things? The peace that Jesus brings is the fact that he's with you. That's the whole Christmas story. God with us, Emmanuel, I've come to bring you peace, and the peace is me and nothing else. No agenda, no other beliefs. It's Jesus period. That's the only place where you will find peace is in Jesus. So as we go to Holy Week, as today represents the day we come with palm branches and maybe you're seeking a revolution in your life and you wave it and you're asking for God save us from this. Maybe perhaps the palm tree of your heart is Lord save me from my agenda and give me yours. What's the agenda that you come and you bring to Jesus and lay it at his feet like they laid the palm tree at his feet? What is the agenda that you need to lay down at Jesus' feet and say, I'm done with serving my own way of doing things and I want to pick up your way of doing things? Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you have come to bring us peace. You have come to give us wholeness. And so, Lord, today, as your spirit works and continues to work in this, in this place, what are the areas where you're trying to get through to us? These little pet projects that we assign you to and say, you are all about this, but you're saying, no, I'm about a different thing. Lord, where do our agendas meet you? Lord, what agendas do I bring to you? God, today, may today be the day that we take our palms, everything that represents the revolution we so wish we had, and lay it at your feet and say, you're the only revolution I want. You're the only thing that's going to bring lasting peace. Because our agendas and your agendas like Halloween eggs Halloween Easter eggs they don't really make sense so Lord take our agendas from us and give us you give us the only peace that will last it's in your name we pray